Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And we are here today to tell you about how our podcast is better than all of the other newsy literature podcasts out there. We alone can make podcasts great again, and the people who listen to other podcasts are sheep. Only we have the real deal. I'd like to see some hard evidence to back up this weird claim, Wit. I'm just... I don't need evidence. I'm saying it into being. This is true, and everyone should know that it's true. Look, I appreciate the effort, but I don't think our audience is going to take you seriously. It works with my kids. Actually, it doesn't, it doesn't work with my kids at all. It, it works in politics, however. Um, anytime you turn on the news, it's just the can- candidates are attacking each other, claiming to be great. They're perfect. They don't have to back it up. And then they end up winning. You mean Republicans. You're talking about Republicans doing that. There's probably even a word for that. It's true that I am talking about Republicans and and, but Democrats don't do it. And why don't, why shouldn't we try? You know, um, if, if we tell, we have a better story and Democrats do too. You know, if they tell voters that Republicans are trying to take away your freedom or your family, they'd just be telling the truth. And we're just telling the truth about how good our podcast is, by the way. And that phrase, your freedom and your family, um, and the truth of the Republicans trying to take it away is um, the expertise of our upcoming guest, who points out that if we were ever going to tell disinterested Americans how dangerous the GOP is, now is probably the time. We're taping this, by the way, on Friday, February 23rd. And yesterday, Trump was leading Marquette Law School's 2024 polling with 51% of voters. Biden is a notch behind at 49%. Can a simple change in Biden's rhetoric really tilt the scale among these swing voters in his favor? Today, we have just the right guest to tell us what Democrats should say now to win in 2024. Yes, political scientist Rachel Bittekoffer is here to talk to us about what Democrats should tell voters during this upcoming election cycle. She's an election forecaster turned political strategist. Her interviews and analysis have been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Political, CNN, MSNBC, and many other prominent news sources. She worked with Democratic Party candidates and organizations to implement a negative partisanship strategy in the 2022 midterms. And her new book, Hit Him Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game, came out earlier this month. Month, Rachel, welcome to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me here today. We really appreciate your joining us. Um, so we want to start with negative partisanship, which provides something of a framework for your book. We're going to talk a little bit later about how this can affect 2024. But first... You analyzed this for the Democratic Party to help during the 2022 election cycle. Could you just explain to our listeners what negative negative partisanship is and what it looked like in 2022? Sure. I'm going to just have to take a quick time capsule back a little further to 2018, which is the first cycle I got involved. I was a pollster at a university um, involved in, in public, you know, commentary about elections. And what made my commentary interesting to people was a concept from political science research called negative partisanship. So if you're listening to this pod um, or show, you probably have your own partisan identity, which is a 
positive identity. You align with the Democrats, for example, because you are into, you know, good schools and healthcare and things, right? But you also have, because our system is very unique with this two-party system, you also have some negative partisanship that that is is sparked by op- the opposition party. So you have you feel positive things for Repu- for Democrats but you feel negative things also and those things are about Republicans. So my research was about getting people to understand that polarization, mass um hyperpartisanship, tribalism in a in a less academic term doesn't it's not a buzzword. It it actually denotes a measurable difference change in mass voter behavior and it it predicts that there'll be an enthusiasm advantage on the side that's locked out of power so when you mentioned 2022 um in political science there's this thing called midterm effect and it, it sometimes gets enough mention in contemporary mainstream media that maybe people have heard the term before but what it is is it's a, it's the tendency for the president's party to get really hammered in the two year later midterm in the middle of the presidential term where it's just congress up and many more voters sit out they don't participate in that the presidential election is the big marquee and that dictates that you usually when you're in party you're going to pay a price so negative partisanship was about tapping into the fear that people felt about the republican party being in charge or potentially coming back into charge of their lives and basing a midterm strategy that was focused on discarding and we can we could get into this so i'm just going to quickly say it um, discards the old electioneering model, which treats the electorate as kind of two distinct universes, a, a base that you have to mobilize with like red meat policy stuff, and then a, a persuadable middle that you can win over if your candidate is more moderate, more bipartisan, more qualified, has a better biography, whatever, right? Getting Democrats to understand that that's not how Republicans electioneer anymore, and against it, we have to run. We cannot electioneer like that because it's a it's failing in the um, competition test. Even if these messages test well amongst individual voters and democratic testing programs, the end of the day, the message is going to come into a space where there's a competing message. And our rationality, facts based, policy based appeals are designed for an electorate that's informed and engaged, and that is not the electorate we have. 2022 went pretty well in the end for the Democrats, you know, despite the fact that it was supposed to go poorly. How did your policies play out specifically in that in that uh, election? Yeah, so uh, so I want to be clear too. Negative partisanship strategy is bigger than me. Like there are many people who have taken this up, you know, and evolved it into their own stuff. So where it deployed is in Arizona and Michigan, and Arizona was more directly involved. Um, it, it, what it does is it, it set up, we, we have a story of two races, two electoral strategies that deployed in the field in 2022. Luckily for me, as I was trying to get people to embrace this, stop trying to swing swing voters to you. That's not how Republicans do it. They make sure that the swing voter doesn't want to buy us, a whole brand Democrats and Dem- and the branding work that Republicans do is is it's universal. It doesn't like make exceptions for moderate Dems, and it's about getting people, swing voters, to not want to buy the Democratic brand. But what helped that crystallize for people was the repeal of Dobbs. So I knew like right away I was like, oh gosh, thank goodness 
and I say this in the book, right, that Dobbs was a way to take what I was arguing and, and really put it into concrete, like actionable stuff that our, our typical, our regular developed electioneering system could use. But the fact is, not everybody used it, okay? <laughs> so in Michigan and Arizona, they they defined the races, the Michigan races, the Arizona statewides, as a referendum on the on Republican extremism because they are accepting the fact that the voters actually, most voters won't know the Republican Party is extremist unless we are telling them what they're up to because civic literacy is very low. And in the Beltway bubble, New York City, L.A., we assume everyone is like us because the people that we are maneuvering around at our jobs, even um, certainly in our per- our personal networks, are all like us. Highly informed, college-educated people that have an interest in civics and government affairs. Interest drives knowledge. If you think about something you're not interested in at all, like say NASCAR, for me, I don't know a single NASCAR driver right now. Like not a single one. And though I might be able to say like Talladega, it's imagistic. I thought like that's all I really know in relation to NASCAR, right? That's how many, nobody cares many... about NASCAR anymore. Anyway, <laughs> they're doing terrible. We just, we just lost but, the whole NASCAR but, section of our audience, Whitney. There they go. There are there yeah. isn't one. I mean, there, the sports in trouble. <laughs> but here's the thing, guys. Like, if you're not a NASCAR fan, you're like me, right? You know Talladega Nights, and maybe like maybe one dude. Maybe, you know, but that's what people, other people, folks know about politics. They know Joe Biden is the president. Before that, they knew it was Trump. They knew it was Obama. They might know the vice president. Okay. They might. (laughs) And then once you get into like what's happening in D.C. or not happening, which is a big part of the Republican obstruction you know, strategy they've been deploying for over a decade now. Like to them, it's if, if immigration reform doesn't happen, it begins and ends with the one thing that they understand and know about politics, the president, the presidency. It's not Congress, and they certainly don't understand that it's because Republicans have control of the agenda when they control the House chamber, right? So we we are assuming a universe of targets in terms of electioneering content that is not um, it's not relevant. Like well, our job is to make sure people who are, don't know anything that we know, know the most important thing that we know, which I describe as a big frame that you can do many different things in, which is the Republican party is an existential threat to you, your freedom, your security, your money, right? Your safety. And so, um, yeah, getting people to, understand like our job is to tell the electorate there's an emergency they will not magically know because they are not like us okay we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back so in michigan and arizona just give me one example of how you got that message out. Was it through television? Was it through social media advertising? Was it the way the candidates talked in some speeches? What was, what was, give me one example of a way that you were delivering Right, right. I mean, my work is mostly with the state parties and I'm doing a big training with all the 57 state party committees in April. Um, but the Whitmer campaign, what they did so well, how you're asking, how did they do it? Well, 
they did exactly what the Bitcoffers do, even if they don't know what they're doing, right? They exactly what I wanted them to do, which was to define the opponent, Tudor Dixon, as a MAGA extremist who was radical on abortion and dangerous to the voter, right? Not to other groups or just poor women or, you know, whatever, but to, to the actual you know, recipient, like they're coming for your freedom, your health, your wealth and safety. If you noticed, I said that before, but actually it, it sounds, but it sounds radical or it should sound radical because most of our messaging is not about, Hey, you, you individual, you're going to lose something. A lot of us, our messaging written by liberals for liberals is a collective frame. You should vote or care because of others or because of this or because of that. Right. So it's very intentional. And so they, the, the execution that you saw, not just with Whitmer, but also Jocelyn Benson and Dana Nessel's campaign, so all three defined, I mean, they were running against uh, election deniers down ballot, right? Defined MAGA Republicans as a threat because a lot of people who will go in, even now in 24 and 22 and these other races, there's the MAGA base and it's not small, folks. There is a massive chunk of Americans that are deep in a mass psychosis event. And we're not talking about a couple million people. We're talking about 40 million people. But the rest of that Republican voting coalition is actually voting largely on, on brand impression, right? So like they're going in because they, they think of Republicans as low tax, limited government, good on national defense, okay? And unless we tell them and show them, actually folks, they're terrible on the economy. They're getting, they're trying to betray our NATO allies and line ourselves with Russia and China, right? Um, on national defense, if we do that, we bring them up to speed on what the modern Republican brand is, as they unfortunately did to us, right, by misrepresenting our brand and defining everybody as, you know, a member from San Francisco or from Brooklyn, which is very radical congressional districts. We have, of course, extremism in the Democratic Party, but it's a very small segment of the party and they have no real power, yet they have defined our brand around it, right? Meanwhile, the Republicans have, have been ever every cycle becoming more radicalized so that now it's the opposite. They're controlled by radicals and the moderates are the smaller part. Yet many Americans have never heard a message about extremeness. So when you say what happened in Arizona and Michigan, you have to look at what, what didn't happen in in Ohio Florida and North Carolina, where they did not make the race about telling voters J.D. Vance is a MAGA extremist. Many people walked into the Ohio voting booth and they didn't know anything about J.D. Vance and they never heard that he has actually, frankly, very fascist views in some regards, especially when it comes to rights for women. They never told the electorate that because our assumption is that people know. (laughs) And my work is to, as a political scientist, is to prove to you in that front half of the book, they do not and they will not unless we find a way, you know, with all of the deficits that we have in the communications hub, we don't have Fox, we don't have people who are rigidly devoted to like YouTube, you know, shows like Joe Rogan, but we do have assets and we must deploy them in a centralized way to compete and make sure that people find out if they cast a ballot for an R and they're voting on that party brand almost exclusively, what that brand now stands for. So you were mentioning, of course, like there are races where people didn't deploy the strategy 
Um, and now there are Republican governors or other Republican officials in control. What does that mean for 2024? Like, what are the ramifications of, right, midterm effect on the next presidential cycle? Yeah, no, here's the here's the low and the hoe of it. <laughs> and this is why this mission is a this book is a mission. OK, it's not it's it's a team effort. My co-author is a fantastic writer, helped me put these complex political science and strategic things into really digestible bites. By the end of the day, the team at Crown and Penguin Random House, everyone involved in this book understands like how important it is that this book be used on the swing map across the board, okay? So like the Senate map this time is like the House map was in 22. Beating them and keeping them to five seats in the House, though it may not feel like it to a layperson, was an was an immense victory, right? Okay? Considering Republicans won sixty three seats in the House in a in a similar situated midterm, right? So it was a huge victory, but the but the Senate map was easier last cycle, and then we got lucky with people like you know Herschel Walker and and um, you know Doctor Oz in in critical races. But we could have had three more seats because we didn't deploy negative partisanship strategy. And this time, the Senate is such that there's no room for error. So what I'm doing now in my work, my my actual work and my media uh, outreach is just making sure people understand if we deploy a strategy defining them as extremists and making it clear to voters that they're facing a personal threat and we deploy that at every swing race from the state legislative races up to the House, to the Senate, governor races. And then the Biden team's already doing it from the top down. They're all in on that strategy, right? So, like, if we close that gap, we'll never have Fox, but we will make a cacophony of noise with a centralized message. And, and for more on that, people can read the CRT chapter where I talk about how Republicans, they you never, never sell me on Republicans caring about race in schools, but they all ran on it. Glenn Youngkin is a business conservative. He probably has never even heard of something like CRT, but he defined his whole campaign around it, even though that's not his personal issue that he wants to work on. Because he knew it was political dynamite and or kryptonite for Democrats, and they all ran on it. The state legislative rars, the governors, the AG, and the lieutenant gov in in the Commonwealth there. So it's it, the importance of this work is to get into the hands of the people who will be running all these swing races and the activists that will support those campaigns. Because keep in mind. The grassroots on our side, I lay this out, like we are, we don't have billionaires, so we have 500 different grassroots organizations, and they're the most important resource we have. So that way, we can take a strategy onto the Senate map that will give us the highest probability. Uh, obviously, the presidential race is, 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 is do or die, I mean, for democracy, but it, you would like to envision a world where Democrats could rebuke the fascism and blatant talks of, of ending democracy that are coming out of the Republican Party decisively by holding on to all three branches, especially because with this party, the Republicans in the condition they are in, I can't see where they would be confirming any federal judges if they control the confirmation process, which they would, uh, not just Supreme Court justices for Biden, but any federal judge they're so radicalized right now. So we really have to make sure average Americans hear what's happening because they do not consume any political news or information. 
Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So you've been talking about meta, uh, negative partisanship, but you do talk about another uh, technique in the book that I found really interesting, which is, uh, and then it's also taken from the GOP playbook, which is a wedgie, right? A wedge issue. And, and in chapter 10 of Hidden Where It Hurts is entirely dedicated to this rhetorical tool. I wondered if you could read from that chapter and then we could sort of discuss this strategy. Yeah, that's great. I will. I will read it. In the art of electoral war, Wedging is a tactic that messages a political issue, usually a complicated and controversial one, to divide a coalition, to further divide the electorate, and or to forcefully frame the opposition party as a potential threat to something voters value or have. Wedge issues are like bunker buster bombs, the opposite of finding common ground. They split people apart. When Republicans successfully give Democrats wedgies, they push us into defensive territory, often forcing us to do the politically uncomfortable work of defending or explaining hyperbolic claims like Democrats are coming for your guns or Democrats support murdering babies. Most important, wedge issues accomplish the two goals of negative partisanship, to turn out voters from your team and to disqualify the opposition in the eyes of swing voters. It's rare but even beyond Biden's State of the Union wedgie in 2023, Democrats sometimes give wedgies to Republicans. When liberal Democrats in Congress propose national health insurance for all Americans, which Republicans generally oppose, some proponents switched from the, calling the idea single-payer health care to Medicare for all. Why? Because single-payer health care is confusing and requires explanation. But... Medicare is already a well-known single-payer government entitlement that 65 million Americans rely on for their health insurance. And GOP leaders know damn well how popular it is among voters. Using the term Medicare for all drives a wedge because it forces Republicans in Congress into an uncomfortable corner. It's easy for them to oppose socialized medicine and government health care but it's much more difficult for them, politically at least, to oppose something that already benefits millions of Americans, something as popular and straightforward as Medicare for everyone. This is pretty weak compared to the wedgies Republicans give us, but hey, even a weak wedge is still a wedge. Thank you. I feel like just listening to you, I'm sitting here coming up with ways I can attack Republicans, which... Frankly, feel, frankly, feels really good. Um, <laughs> and that's the reason I wrote it. <laughs> so your last statement about a weak wedge still being a wedge, I feel like that encapsulates the issue Democrats face when it comes to that kind of rhetoric. They try, they're trying to kind of keep up with Republicans, but they're always a step behind and they don't attack with the kind of brashness that captures headlines. Why are Democrats hesitant to use these techniques like wedging that are making up essentially Republicans' entire platforms? Yeah, no, I think it is hard. I talk about, in the book, I talk directly. I knew members of Congress and the Senate and what have you would be reading this book. So I, it's written to everyone. It's written to the layperson. It's written to them too. And I talk about, look, I know why you got into government. I know you want to be good at public policy and you care about people and you want to do good things. <laughs> That's great, right? But at the end of the day, folks, 
because you are dealing with a rough clay, rough, what I call rough clay in the electorate, a, a, a peoples who never have been cultured for civic responsibility. Okay, we're, we're as Americans, we're actually cultured to, to, so that people feel almost morally superior by not voting, which is like kind of crazy, right? We run into people all the time like that. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, like, even though you want to, ha- to have everything you say to be factual and accurate and substantive and coalition building, you're not going to ever get to build a, a single thing sitting out because you lost the race, okay? Like, t- the people in Ohio, the people in Wisconsin, the people in North Carolina, and the people in Florida, the people that you care about, the policies that you wanted to enact them, it's not happening because you didn't win, so we have to separate communication, politicking, the the real politics, right, from the governing we want to do with the power and understand that because we are in an environment where the opposition is has set up a system that that is 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 about narrative and and hyper, hyperbolic narrative setting, we have to do the same and and that does require Stop sanitizing our language. We, when we want to hit Republicans, even, even like weekly, we sanitize it. Republicans are stopping progress so we can't protect our kids at school. How about Republicans are siding with killers over kids by giving them weapons of war, right? Like we have to make it pop. And if you don't make it pop and you don't make an image and in the gut message, it's not going to be effective. And if it's not effective, you're not going to win. And if you don't win, we're not going to have congressional majorities. And if we don't have congressional majorities at this point, who knows what happens to, to Latinos, to Muslims, to the press. We have to hold on to power at all costs. So it really is time for people to get out of their comfort zones and do the hard work of winning the narrative. I uh, live in Kansas City, out far away from the Beltway. Um and Sugi now grew up near the Beltway, so she's not totally to be trusted, but she lives in Minnesota now. Um, but I, you know, one of the more depressing things of my lifetime has been watching Missouri, which was a reliably Democrat state, a, a Democratic state, or, or at least would vote for Democrats, uh, become a hard red state. And uh, there's a section in your book about the wedging rural issues, which is near and dear to my heart, which I don't think the Democratic Party does a good job of. And they, they don't speak to rural voters well at all. You mentioned, you know, that really, Demo- according to Democratic policy, Democrats are the only ones who are having any policy victories in, in, in the Midwest, in, in rural areas. Broadband expansion, for instance, being one very good example. Um, but we don't, they, we don't talk about it very well. I wondered if you could talk about how Democrats could approach wedging the rural issues, you know, and, and, and getting rural voters to pay attention to them again. Yeah, the nice thing about getting onto the Republican model of one message that drives strong turnout amongst your base, your independent leaners, because it's a big section about the book about how independents aren't mostly independent, um, and yet, and pushes swing voters away. So when we talk about what Democrats need to do, uh, some of it has been hampered by the the refusal to move off of a base model, a persuasion model, separate universe, because I can't attack Republicans and be moderate. Well, interestingly enough, we have five swing state Republicans who won 
in swing races by not being moderate at all. Not in temperament, not in advertising, not in rhetoric, right? So it's about getting Democrats to tell the story now. It's 50 years on into Reaganomics. Republicans have ruled the roost in the Midwest and rural areas for decades, and their record has been an absolute and total catastrophe for rural America. Because when they starve the beast and starve the government, what they've been doing is starving their rural communities. If you want to know why your kids can't live in small town America today, the answer is the Republican Party. But we have never made that comp that had that conversation or made that effort. And so I'm really hoping, you know, this pick this book and mantle gets picked up also by the long shot or real de-aligning places, because we don't have to be losing to these people. But we need to go into rural America. They're angry, right? People are angry. But we're not direct. What we're trying to do is say, well, look, we gave you this and that. And delivery politics has, has its limits, guys. I mean, D- Biden delivers $138 billion to the progressives because they're like student loan reform is their issue. But now they don't want to vote for him because of Gaza. You see what I'm saying? So like that there's no benefit in that. And what we need to do is we need to get out there and have everyone hammering the Republican brand big broad brush if your if your opponent's a republican he's part of this party this party is a mega extremist party with crazy policies you got to tie it all together and in that process you have to tell the voters yes you're mad we hear you and here is who screwed you over okay and if we do that i think we're going to see some returns on investment So I want to pick up on something you just said because it has to do with a question that I've been wondering about. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of messaging from campaigns like Abandon Biden and other other things that are sort of in that vein that are basically using imagery and rhetoric um, to point out the similarities between Trump and Biden, right? Um, Things like things that are sort of noting essentially that like on this particular issue, they might actually not be that far apart. And I'm curious about, um, right, I'm, I mean, I'm saying this as someone who's in favor of a ceasefire in Gaza and a free Palestine, and I'm seeing more and more people I know who are progressive not wanting to vote for Biden. And I'm curious about what advice you would give Democrats on that issue. Um, like how? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. I mean, this is obviously something that keeps coming up. And here's the thing. Number one, the difference between Trump and Biden is not small on, on Gaza. If Donald Trump was in office right now, let's say it was 2025 and he's in office, then Netanyahu would have a free hand to do whatever he wanted in Gaza. And although people rhetorically, you know, there's not, it's hard to make nuance, right? If you guys think Gaza looks bad now, you should imagine it under Donald Trump and Netanyahu unhinged. They would raise the whole thing with the intent of putting a Trump tower in there. And we know it's true. Because what what Muslim or anybody who cares about Muslim people abroad or here should know is the Republican Party has a plan. It's called Project 2025. It's a thousand page transition manual that will be handed to the next Republican administration. And it is a manual to transition the presidency from a democ- you know, separation of power system into an autocracy, one party state. And the first people that they want to come for are Muslim, who they call everyone who's, who's you, okay, wants a ceasefire, cares a lot about this issue, 
in the Republican mind, you are anti-American. You are pro-Hamas. And they are going to come and they're going to review everyone's naturalization. They're going to put them to litmus tests for America. And this is out on Steve Miller, who's no two-bit radio host. He worked in the last administration. He's the author of the catching, uh, Caging Kids separation immigration stuff. And he's coming back in with Trump. They are going to round up Muslim Americans and deport them at big, big numbers. They're going to do the same thing in the Latino community. And I just think it is my obligation. Now, I'm not trying to dismiss your concerns or the concerns that people have about Gaza, but I do see it as my obligation to make sure every immigrant community in this country knows they are right in the crosshairs and it won't be a small sacrifice or four years of pain or some small setbacks, what they are promising in writing and on video is to decimate the American Muslim community. So the, I feel like getting that across to those communities is probably the, be the most important thing that we can do. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So I just want to clarify for our listeners, the image that I had in mind as I was asking this question related to Gaza, um, I saw an image and I'll see if I can find it and put it in our show notes. But essentially, it was a, just a picture of the trolley problem. And it had one track, Biden, you know, a couple of people tied to the tracks and the other track, Trump, um, and many people tied to the tracks. And then it sort of said, people think that that it looks like this, but it actually looks like this. And then another drawing of the trolley problem with equal numbers of people on each track. So I just um, wanted to clarify that like sort of I, my interest in asking you this question is, I think I would love to for Biden to be held accountable um, for the way that he's handling it. And I also don't think it's the same. Um, and also, I do think that there has to be a response to the progressive folks who are asking this question. And, and it's um, the one that you're that you're sharing is terrifying. Um, and I want to go back and ask about another, another, yeah. <laughs> another thing that has been in the news recently that has been kind of fascinating to me, and especially th that I was on my mind as I was reading your book, which is that Trump and Biden are, at least in my mind, sort of of a comparable age. And yet somehow we are always talking about how old Joe Biden is and whether he's competent for office, when really we should be talking about how incompetent and dangerous Trump is. So yes. why, how have Republicans or I don't know, someone else, some mysterious hand. Why is Biden's age somehow an issue and Trump's is not? I'm glad you asked that. For folks who get the book and read it, and I highly recommend you do, and not because you know, I'm making to make money off of it, I will, but I need you to read this book so that we can save democracy. When you do, you're going to realize, wow, a lot of what happens is not organic, okay? 
Hillary Clinton, the Benghazi stuff, what they did to her personal approval rating, and then, of course, they stumbled into a butter email server at the end to wrap it all up in a nice bow. That was a three-year process, folks. It didn't even start till two years after Benghazi. So the Republicans don't just leave things to chance. They've understood that age was going to be a liability for Joe Biden since his first run in 2020, let alone if he chose to rerun for the reelect, which you almost always do because you have massive structural advantages when you run your incumbent president president for re-election. So they started two years ago with their, you know, in the book I lay out how much of it is professionalized over there, well-funded. We have 500 grassroots groups. Nobody gets paid. They don't centralize. It's, you know, completely ineffective. They have Turning Point USA. It's got an $80 million budget, annual budget, four office complex in, in Tempe, and they're flying all around the country doing, you know, razzle-dazzle to indoctrinate the youth. So we have massive asymmetries, and one of them is this long-term strategic stuff that they do in terms of tarnishing our, our future candidates. So, you know, online, they have been, for like the Trump digital army, and there's it's a vast army across all the platforms, have for years been trying to make sure that they share a lot of content showing Biden stuttering. You know, it's, it's usually taken out of context where it's, you know, look how slow he's walking. He's old and demented. It's like weekend at Bernie's, right? And that was before the Her report. So I, when the Super Bowl decision came out, I was like, God, no, don't do that. You have to do the Super Bowl. It's the only, again, front half of the book, the only time 137 million Americans will pay attention to politics this year was that Super Bowl, I mean, that ad, if you force them to see that Biden's not a drooling, senile idiot, okay? And because of the Republican strategy have to frame him that way, it, we already had this problem when they turned down the Super Bowl interview. Now it's even worse because the Her Report comes out. It's obviously written in a political way because the finding is, hey, he didn't do anything we can charge. And at the end of the day, they use it to set a narrative. And what do we do? The media, they know our norms and ethics. They know how we behave and they structure their strategy around it. They knew that the media would take that and run. So it's a major problem because as you well know, if you're, if you're in the Beltway bubble, if you're in the information 1%, if you're the people I have told you are not normal, then you know Donald Trump is deranged. He's like, he's, he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what day it is. Doesn't know who did January 6th. He's, he misspeaks in ways that are so profound, like, you know, cars at the revolution, that they're more than just you know, a stumbled word. And yet here we, we can look at public opinion polling and we can see clearly it's Biden who the voters have that view of. And the only answer to that is to make sure Trump's mental fitness stuff content is equally amplified, put out. We have to make sure Americans see that Donald Trump is a mess. And the reason why is that is Biden's big negative, okay? Other than Gaza, which is a, is a problem, um, the other thing that is most endangering us into collapsing into fascism and in terms of reelecting Biden holding the presidency is age. And it's amazing that voters would say, well, you know, this guy's old. I mean, the other one's a fascist. He's going to round up immigrants. He's going to deport. He's going to end birthright citizenship too, folks. So if you're an immigrant, you should really be paying attention to what the Republicans have planned for you. They want to go back and 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 all the people who are born to Ill, you know what they call illegals who became citizens. They want to come after them too. They call them anchor babies. It's a very serious threat. It absolutely is tremendously different than anything Biden would ever do. And we need people to to be talking about it. 
In your introduction, you suggest that Democrats, quote, connect the dots for voters who don't connect dots on their own. Um, you're saying it's not enough to tell voters that Republicans are lying. Democrats need to make clear that Republicans are going to steal, take things from them, freedom, their money, right? I'm curious how you would integrate examples of rhetoric like this into Biden's speeches. You know, if you could take Biden aside before a speech and say, look, here's some things that I want you to say. What would you tell him to say? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, Biden does pretty good. I mean, like I said, the White House strategy is going to be running on a threat to freedom, you know, negative part of even if they don't call it that. Right. That's what they're running. And I feel confident about it. Um, but, you know, that said, the bully pulpit's the bully pulpit. Right. So if I could control Biden and I had a direct ear to him. He would definitely be saying and doing some things that they don't have him saying and doing right now. It's imperative now that Biden do a lot of off-the-cuff, in-presence stuff because he needs to prove that he's actually mentally fit for office, unfortunately. He has to prove that. But, you know, at the end of the day, getting him to say to do the branding work, the credit claiming works. It's not it's one thing to tell people you got them $35 insulin. You've got to tell them every Republican voted no. And Biden's doing that. Where we need that to come down is we need John Tester in Montana doing that, and we need Sherrod Brown in Ohio doing that, and we need all these open swing races in Arizona and all these other places pounding that because unless it comes down down ballot, it can't set a narrative. And I, I know that because in 2020, uh, we lost seats in the House that we should have won, okay, and underperformed ba- down ballot as better, as good as Biden did. The Democrats did very bad, and that's why I quit my track and, and shifted. And that's because up at the top, the message was, look at this guy. He's telling you to drink bleach. He's a hot mess. He's going to, you know, steal, you know, won't give you aid, whatever. But none of that came down to these, everyone ran their own race, you know, against their own Republican. They didn't tie them to the Republican brand. They didn't tie that brand to Donald Trump and the craziness. And so that we walked into an election cycle where the Republican Party was holding hostage in the Senate something called the HEROES Act for the first responders, billions of dollars for frontline COVID responders in August and July and September, and they never passed it. And 3,000 Americans are dropping dead because in the red states, they just pretended there was no pandemic after April of 2021, folks. Why, we spent that year inside in the South. Life went on. I know, I went there and visited once. It was nuts. It was like there was no COVID. And we never told that narrative to voters. Hey, you can't let Republicans be in control of your life. They are going to steal your money and they're going to get you killed, right? So it's so, it's so important I know everyone's focused on Biden, but what I'm telling you is I, I'm observing their strategy and, I, and, and it's very good, right? What we need is the rest of the system to be doing it. Rachel Bittekoffer, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I haven't felt this riled up in a while. So listeners, don't miss Hit Him Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game, uh, Taking the Narrative Back, and available in your local independent bookstore now. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. 
We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!